Hello, and welcome to episode 125 of the Cognicast, which means we're an eighth of the way to episode 1000. The Cognicast is a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. And this week, host Karen Meyer talks with Chris Nuremberger. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. There's going to be a closure bridge in London on June 2nd and 3rd, and another one, more or less around the same time, a closure bridge in New York City on June 2nd to the 4th. I say this with every episode, but it never gets old. Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. So if you fit that description and you're going to be in either London or New York in early June and think you might like to dip your toe into the world of closure programming, take a look. You can find more information at www.closurebridge.org events. In other news, the Boston Closure Group meets Thursday, June 8th, and you can get more information about that at meetup.com slash boston closure group. Finally, the speakers have been announced for EuroClosure 2017 in Berlin. So go on over to 2017.euroclosure.org speakers and have a look, and you can also get your tickets there. If you have a closure-related event that you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen Meyer and Chris Nuremberger and episode 125 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is May the 2nd, and this is the Cognicast. Uh, I'm Karen Meyer, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Nuremberger to the show. So thank you for being with us, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. So you're out in Denver, is this right? Boulder, actually. Boulder, Boulder, sorry. <laughs> so what's the weather there? Was it kind of like crazy snowing or something? It was this weekend, but right now it's about 60 degrees. Wow. So mm-hmm. it went from snow to 60 degrees in May-ish? Is that- uh, yeah, and we can expect one more of those kind of, those kind of big changes. Uh, the mountains in the winter and spring, are the weather is very variable. It could be... 22 degrees tonight and it could be 70 degrees tomorrow wow that is quite a big change mm-hmm. so the the leaves haven't frozen off or anything they're they're you know we lost a few blossoms for sure yeah the early the early adopters they lost out on this one <laughs> whoa <laughs> Oh, uh, when I was introducing you, I totally forgot to mention, uh, other than your name, who you are and where you work for. So you work for ThinkTopic, and and uh, you are in, heavily involved in the Cortex uh, project. Are you leading it up? I'm currently leading it. Okay. I uh, don't know how long that'll stay that way. You know, I really wish it was, I'd like it to be more fluid. But yeah, at the moment, I'm leading it. 
Okay, cool. Well, um, at the beginning of each show, we usually ask our guests to share with us an experience of art in some sort of fashion. So I'm going to ask you. um... Okay. Well, I danced many, many years of my life, and I performed a lot of those years. So I think art to me has always been a very physical endeavor, when you dance and especially when you perform, you know, your body's your instrument. So for me, art a lot of times was expression of concepts and musicality through motion and with partners. Wow, that's really cool. So did you what kind of dance did you do? Ballet, modern? I've done uh, a lot, many years of salsa. I did a few years, five years of ballet. I was in a kind of a mix between a ballroom and a modern dance company. So I didn't really learn traditional like gram technique or anything like that, but she would mix modern in, but we would do it with a ballroom flair. So we do it with lifts and all sorts of other stuff you don't usually see in, in uh, modern. And now I have, I've gotten into tango and I've been working at tango for a long time. And if I ever perform again, I'll, it will be tango. Wow. So um, I, I have a dance background too. And I've always heard people say like, tango is like hardcore like you could it's one of those things for perfectionists kind of uh, gravitate towards like ballet that you can never really get it perfect I mean but it's beautiful to watch but it's Mm. it's it's hardcore do you you find it that way yeah I find it's uh I, I would not compare it to ballet I think ballet is much harder at the end of the day you know there's nothing as hard as ballet in the physical realm pretty much aside from being an olympic athlete or something like that but um it is in terms of the ballroom dances it's the ballet of ballroom dance you dance closer your balance has to be more exact to make sure your partner has great balance your moves have less room for forgiveness and you can't do all the moves from all the positions so as a lead or a choreographer you have to you have to know exactly what's available from what position given this orientation of the couple so as a lead it's really hard and as a follow i think it's also really hard because the leads are subtle there's a lot of many chained moves you do together where uh, the follow needs to be on balance and on one leg and perfectly timed with the music and a lot of other things. So it's got a lot of very difficult components, especially, you know, as a partner dance, you have to learn really, you have to work hard to dance with somebody else really well. Yes, definitely. Definitely. The music too, the tango music, you've got to love the tango music if you're going to dance to it. I mean, that's... <laughs> you know, that's something I, uh, that's something that you, it grows on you. The old school <laughs> kind of tango music, it, um, it, it was recorded before we had great range in our recording systems. And especially if the bandoleon is really heavy in the music, it can get really trebly and kind of a little screechy. But mm-hmm. the music is very, very complex. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's like classical where it's got almost like a fugue where it's got repeated sections and this kind of thing that you as a choreographer gives you a math almost a mathematical basis to do things but when I practice tango I don't practice to the old school stuff I have to admit (laughs) so uh, do they have any place where uh, you can go to like live tango music or anything around okay Boulder Denver has a lot of tango music I'd say once every two weeks you can go, maybe not live, but DJ'd, and then once a month, probably live. Oh, that's cool. So you've actually got people on the dance floor all doing tango. Yep. 
Wow, that's awesome. And a formalized dance called a milonga where, you know, there's rules and how you ask and all sorts of other things. It's close to ballroom in that sense, like if you're going to go to a waltz. Very cool. That's awesome. It's exciting for me, too. To um, I've, I've talked with a lot of people that have come and do uh, closure and programming through mu- musicians and, you know, visual arts. Mm-hmm. But uh, I haven't met too many dancers. So, <laughs> yay. So it's, it's great to uh, hear that. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, l- l- I wanted to ask you, because um, I'm a big fan, I have to admit. I'm a big, big fan of the uh, Cortex project because mm-hmm. of the, the deep learning, being able to use it easily in closure. So I wanted to ask you kind of first, first getting out of the gate, uh, um, if you could share like how that came about and uh, where it's going and, and, and just a story behind it. Well, I'm co-founder of ThinkTopic and we started the company to do machine learning. And uh, we also have all had a lot of experience in a lot of languages, and we all kind of gravitated to Clojure because the expressiveness and simplicity of a Lisp is amazing, and just the architecture that Rich provided with its kind of threading subsystem, and a lot of the tools around it are amazing, but it's not very built out for machine learning. And so we initially tried Docker containers running Python, and that was okay, but at some point, uh, we just knew enough and decided we are going to try to make a run at making a real machine learning platform in Clojure. Not to kind of down-talk anybody else's, but there's a big difference between Cortex that runs on the GPU and the CPU and things like this and, and some of the other machine learning platforms. That was a bigger jump. It required a larger commitment, and it really required ThinkTopic to basically fund people to work on it for a long time. So you have some experience with that lower level, right, GPU? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how did how did that come about? Well, I was always interested in 3D graphics in college. And then I got hired at a startup that was doing 3D graphics on the web. So I got to do a lot of C++ and low-level stuff there. And then uh, went to a GIS company and bounced around a little bit. And then finally ended up at NVIDIA through a route that it's long enough that it's probably not worth explaining. But I worked at NVIDIA for 10 years, roughly, doing graphics engines and doing the platform that they now use for the DrivePX systems, or at least they did use it at the time. That was a big graphics engine that you could script in order to make user interfaces and realistic gauges and all sorts of other stuff. And so I got quite a lot of experience with writing things that had to perform in constrained environments and low-level details of how the card works or how OpenGL interfaces with the hardware and, and lots of stuff that is really painful to learn and you don't want to learn it twice. Definitely. So how, how did you then go from that and then end up in closure? <laughs> well, honestly, I was. this is an interesting question. I was working doing a lot of C++ and I wanted to jump to a higher level language so I jumped to C Sharp and I worked with a whole team in C Sharp and we wrote a big literally a 3D graphics editor like 3D Studio Max level graphics editor and I got pretty severe RSI mm-hmm. during this whole this time and I realized somewhere in there that I was not going to be able to achieve my ambitions without being able to produce more functionality with less code. And 
when you start thinking about like, okay, I have to get this huge amount of stuff done and I cannot risk my health or my hands, I need to really think about how to do it in a minimal way. Uh, the metaprogramming facilities of Lisp just were so far superior to anything else out there, including C++ at the time, although I think C++ has gone quite a ways, and I think Rust has come quite a ways. But at the time, you know, Lisp, old, like, uh, I got into, I call it CMuckle, CMU Common Lisp, and I was just amazed at how simple the language was without without removing any of the power from the language, because... And that was, you know, coming from C++, that was a real eye-opener, that you could make something based on some level of simple axioms, and you really could build a whole language on it. You didn't need lots of special cases here, there, or wherever. You know, I'm not writing an OS in this thing. I don't need, in general, I don't need specialized access to assembly or that kind of stuff. But I do need things to perform really well, and I was able to achieve that in Common Lisp. And when Clojure came out, I was really dubious because... I'm not overly fond of the Java ecosystem, and I'm not overly fond more than Java ecosystem. Some of the development ethos that kind of come with it, I think they're very heavy-handed. But Clojure does not reflect that, and it performs great. And truth be told, the hotspot is amazing when used with care. Yeah, from what you're saying, too, is, is we should really tout the health benefits of closure too that you get, <laughs> you get to physically take care of you know your hands and everything a lot better you know i think more mature engineers than me would say that's why you work with teams and you learn <laughs> to train teams to do things well but back at the time i was a lone consultant and i really liked being a lone consultant and just being able to outperform a lot of teams just by myself <laughs> so my ego was based a little bit on this, and that also fell, you know, that of course is going to feed into any RSI. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that kind of explains your path to closure. And so so how did you get into kind of the data science and um, deep learning aspect of things? Honestly, I have to credit Jeff, our CEO, for that. He, uh, he came back after DeepMind and moved to Boulder, and we'd always talked about deep learning, and so I knew some of the ways neural nets worked. But once he moved back into Boulder from living in Europe for a while and uh, asked me to be a part of Think Topic, he really, we went through very carefully, and I realized that uh, unless we all really learned deep learning, he was going to be out there by himself and we wouldn't be able to realize a lot of the lessons he learned from from working at DeepMind. So, yeah, yeah. So maybe we could, because I know you have opinions on this, is like, wh- why is it important? Like, why is deep learning important and why should we care about it? I think f- deep learning f- allows you to solve problems that are just not realistically solvable in any other way. So... There's a lot of branches of computer science that do that, but there are specific forms of problems that I think are very interesting uh, with deep learning, and I think at times learning how to use it allows you to solve the class of problems that mankind as a whole really cares about in general. And so we've all talked about kind of automated cars and that kind of thing, but I'm going to take it a different direction in that we're working on you know, medical systems that can produce lots and lots of numbers and huge amounts of data. And I, deep learning is going to be very central to, to providing the level of advancement in medicine that we've seen in physics in the last 150 years. 
So I think the next 100 years, deep learning combined with biomedical research, and that's one example of where I would use it, is going to provide the level of advancements we saw in physics in the last 100 years. So can you give kind of uh, some examples of applications of that in, in the health field? Um, they're going to rely around diagnoses for now. I would say you're, you're given, okay, a good example is you're going to have a, a set of tests or a set of almost telemetric data coming out of your body. And those data, that data is going to be maybe a thousand floating point numbers, maybe 10,000 floating point numbers, maybe an hour. And I just don't see any first way to correlate that data, anything useful like a diagnosis without deep learning. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen some projects like on Kaggle, uh, which is, is the website to kind of do data set competitions that they were using like radiology to try to detect cancer and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So the first step is, you know, yeah, pathology and radiology. So uh, both of those are very image-based fields, and anybody who does an MRI, I think you have 3D images at that point, effectively. A lot of those fields that are just very, very image-based, we, okay, another, we here in the U.S. can always find a radiologist to read our reports, so we may pay more than we want to, but most of the people in the world could not, do not have access to a radiologist. Um, so even if they could get the scan or vice or get the data somehow, they, there's, there's nobody anywhere near who could read it. With deep learning, you can imagine several systems where you can have very cheap sort of sensing devices scattered throughout various places, and a centralized system can make these kind of broad, generalized, conservative diagnoses and really elevate the level of healthcare for like rural populations around the world. That's a great point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, it can it can be used in, in all sorts of good ways to make a good impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, there's also people saying that it can be used in bad ways, too. <laughs> I agree. And I, I, I think it can be used in bad ways. And I think you're only only the only valid response to that is to democratize the technology. Yeah, yeah. There's There's no way to stop people from using to create targeting systems or militarized applications. That's going to happen. That's already happened. I would be surprised if there aren't very precise facial-based targeting systems already available. But the only way that we're going to combat that sort of thing is to understand how they work and understand their flaws and be able to build some countermeasures. But in general, for us as a population to understand deep learning and be able to use it. Yeah, so what... If, do you have any thoughts on what we need to do as technologists to to help that along to um, you know make it more democratized? Well, I think projects like TensorFlow and especially Keras and Cortex are really working hard to take a very difficult set of concepts and make them easier to use in lots of different applications. Um, I think that's one aspect of it. Uh, I think another aspect about it, of it is talking about it and talking about focusing energy, uh, focusing people's energy in ways that will help humanity as opposed to ways that will cause uh, an increased militarization of humanity. You know, there's only so many brilliant people and brilliant minds. If we can influence the next generation of brilliant minds to focus on, you know, medicine and self-automation for homeless or crippled or who knows what, I think that's where we want to go. Yeah, definitely. Um, you brought up uh, TensorFlow and um, Keras. Um, I was wondering maybe you could go into the difference of people that have kind of heard those words thrown about and don't really know what they are and what the difference between them is. 
Yeah, so TensorFlow is a specific uh, engine. It's built by Google, and in my opinion, it's fairly low level. It's almost more of a compilation target or something like that. It, it, there's a lot of ways to shoot yourself in the foot with TensorFlow, but it's really well built, and it's obviously you know been well tested. Uh, Keras is kind of a front end for a couple neural net backends, one of which is TensorFlow. And it's built more of where the top layers of Cortex are designed, more so that you you can do a high volume of machine learning uh, correctly without having to correct lots of little mistakes all along the way. So it's like a higher level that you can talk about more what you want to do than having to get into the nuts and bolts of everything. Exactly. And there's space for all of that because honestly, we don't understand machine learning very well compared to a lot of disciplines. So you need to have low-level access and be able to experiment with the bits and the bytes and various things. But the vast majority of machine learning, you don't want done at that level because it'll lock you into you know, an approach or a platform. Mm-hmm. So uh, is it, when you sat down to design Cortex, were you looking more at trying to be like a Keras then? I think I was looking at building something that we could use to meet our immediate needs and worrying about other things later when they came. Okay. (laughs) And you can see that Cortex has had a couple big kind of refactors and changes, but we use it professionally every day. So that changes kind of the options. I have to make sure it meets our professional needs. It's my obligation to the company. Yeah, so uh, maybe you can talk about that. What what is wh- what do you use Cortex for? And and since it's an open source library, what could other people um, use it for? We use it for image recognition problems. We use it a little bit in the medical space, as I said. Um, but mainly Cortex right now is we use it for image rec level problems. So satellite imagery or uh, e-commerce or various different things where we're looking at lots and lots of uh, image byte data, pixel data. And um, so it's it's set up for that. It works for that. Uh, we also, you know, we try a lot of different techniques. Java has another library for the other end. So that's a good, neural nets in general are good when you do have a lot of data. They can make amazing inferences, but they need a lot of data. That's their key piece. Um, there's another technique, binary forest, and there's a great Java library called XGBoost that's good for the other end of the spectrum. When I really don't have much data, maybe I only have 500 samples, and I need to do something with these 500 samples and get started. Well, that's where kind of something like XGBoost is probably a better approach. Mm, okay, I'm just trying to get an example of like a concrete example of the image classifications. Mm-hmm. So it could be. Uh, did you remember hearing in the news about like this pickle farmer or whatever? <laughs> In Japan. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, or, yeah, or cucumber, cucumber farm, yep. farmer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he did sorting of his cucumbers, I guess, based on these pictures. Yep. Like, like, so he he took like lots and lots of pictures of different cucumbers, and he knew which ones we needed to be sorted in in what bins, and I guess he labeled them. Like, you know, this goes in the small cucumber bin, and this goes in the I don't, I don't know whether <laughs> what other cucumber classifications there are. But basically, you would just have like lots and lots of pictures of that, and then you would say, you know, what sort of type of cucumber bin they, they'd have to get into, and then the machine would learn that, and he he could then use that for his classification of cucumbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So very concretely, 
you know, you want to have a set of images that are labeled with some number of classes, and the number of classes in this case would be, do I want this cucumber or not? So there's two classes. Ideally, you have many, many more images than you have classes. And then you want to divide those that data set, that label data set up into data you're going to train on, which should be, you know, roughly 60 to 70% of it, and data you're going to test on, which you'll never train on. You'll never change the model due to anything in this test set. And pretty much the various toolkits have various ways you can go from there. I like the approach of putting things in directories that are labeled. Um, but a train and test directory with, you know, these labeled images and kind of off you go into the world of choosing a simple net, like starting with MNIST and seeing how it does and then messing with your network. And that can go on forever, pretty much. So MNIST, um, can you explain a little bit what that is? Yeah. MNIST was a project done by uh, Jan LeCun for the Postal Service. And this was really the first... I should be careful. My history is not great in this, but this is definitely one of the most, the biggest breakthroughs for machine, for neural nets ever, especially neural nets that do image processing. And he trained a neural network to just recognize handwritten, handwritten digits. And he trained it within a pretty high degree of accuracy so the postal service could automate some of their processing. You know, the neural nets, I think they're initially called multilayer perceptrons. It's been shown that they can approximate any function, which means we can talk about that later. But they're very general. But actually learning how to train them for lots of different things turned out to be very, very difficult. And it took us as it took us 20 years of research to get them where they are now. And really, nobody really cared, in my opinion, about neural nets to about 2012 when they started winning the image competitions. <laughs> So, so what was the big difference then? What was the big breakthrough that now, now everybody's using them? I'm not sure my history's good enough to say specifically which that is, but you know, one big breakthrough was having the neural network convolutionally, which is how your eyes work. So having the neural network on small little windows that are close to each other in the XY plane, as opposed to having it look at the image as just a big long string of numbers. So that was one big one. And aside from that, there have just been a lot of lessons learned about why something would train and why it didn't train and a lot of hard work put in by a lot of smart people. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like the speed, like the GPU, that we could do things so much faster now than we, that probably wouldn't even be feasible um, like back then. That's a really good point. I think, I can't remember his name. I don't want to butcher it, so I'm not going to say it. But the, the gentleman who won the... Uh, image serve competition, he definitely used NVIDIA's cool CUDA toolkits in order to write a lot of his stuff on the GPU, and it did. It gave him an exponential increase in training speed, and he still had to train it for months. <laughs> so That's a big commitment. <laughs> yeah, I know, and he had to really know what he was doing to set up a training process that was going to give him what he wanted a month later without knowing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of kind of stuff going on there, but yeah, GPUs have been a big, big piece of that. Now we've Google's come out with something called a TPU, which is built a, a specialized chip built for neural network processing and this kind of thing. But I think in general, GPUs are still pretty amazing. That was one as one thing that never left me after years and years of NVIDIA was how amazing a big GPU is, and that's true whether it's NVIDIA or ATI. The big GPUs are just amazing pieces of equipment. You know, they have billions of transformers that work correctly. I uh, just, I mean. They're, they're amazing pieces of equipment when you get into the hardware. 
so I, I I don't really know too much about the whole like GPU history. Did, did they did this all come about because of video games basically? Yeah, it did actually. <laughs> Nvidia produced the first programmable GPU. I don't remember when, but years and years and years ago. And the ability to it, it did all come from video games. People wanted more realistic lighting. Fundamentally, the uh, the truth is the video games you see now are incredibly accurate physics simulations. And in order to make them look real, they're actually simulating some decent percentage of the physics of light. <laughs> so the amount of computation required to do that is intense, and each game may have different styles of lighting they want or different scenes they want or various other aspects of the simulation that they want to focus on, and this requires them to program their GPU. Um, this requires them to program the actual graphics hardware in some minimal way. And so in NVIDIA really struck a balance between allowing some programmability of their hardware, but still making sure that the hardware was free to work as fast as it possibly could. And in a way that's fundamentally different than the way a CPU works. And specifically, uh, CPUs are kind of like multi-thread little devices where each core is completely independent of every other core, and each core is capable of doing anything that it wants. And a GPU doesn't work that way. A GPU is... Single instruction, multiple thread, which means all the threads in a given core of a GPU, uh, well, we have to be careful with what we mean by core here, but a, a, a core of a GPU has several processors in it, and each one of those processors is running the exact same instruction. So that's a different style than I have multiple independent kind of hyper-threaded cores, and all those things are free to do whatever they want. Hmm. So let me let me boil that into a specific example that'll maybe make it more sense make more sense. So if you have an eight core computer and they're all running the same program, and one of the cores hits an if statement, it has no repercussions on the other cores. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you are on a GPU multiprocessor, um, and uh, modern GPUs have many of these, but if you're on a GPU multiprocessor, it may be running sixteen threads, and if one of those threads hits an if statement that that forces it to move different than the other threads, all that happens is the hardware uh, basically disables that processor the ability to write to memory. And it still has to execute all the instructions all the other threads have to do, and then all the other threads have to reset and then execute all the instructions for that one that hit the if statement the other direction. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty intense programming paradigm. That is. Uh, yeah, I'll have to wrap my and, brain about that a little bit. Yeah, and that's why a lot of times when you program on a GPU, you express branching as mathematics, where you will try to multiply by zero or something like that and really try to heavily avoid one of your cores hitting an if statement that the other cores do not. Huh. One of your one of your processors hitting an if statement. Now, if one of your cores hits an if statement, the other core does not. That's different. But each core has many processors, so there's a whole different kind of way of thinking about it. Wow, that's pretty intense, <laughs> quite mm-hmm. frankly. But uh, they're yeah. very hard to program. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah, I just I, I think that it's it's so neat um, too that we're pushing the boundaries of what humans can do now with uh, like deep learning. And this has been enabled basically by play, (laughs) you know, people playing games. And it's kind of like, you know, as, as animals and, and, you know, we all kind of start learning by playing and it just seems like it's 
happening again in the computer world. We're, we're yeah, that's true. And it, oh, yeah, it is by play, but I, I don't think it feels like play to develop one of the AAA titles or a big graphics engine. <laughs> I bet not. So much science behind those. It's just insane. Like it, they're really complex. So you can bring all this uh, wonderful, complex knowledge about the GPUs to the Cortex project, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I do, and I do it very carefully. So I feel like Cortex has probably the easiest intro to GPU programming available in any dynamic language. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we probably have the best environment for generalized CUDA computation. GPU computation, and if somebody would like to write an OpenCL backend, then I could say GPU. But for now, I'm going to say CUDA. But but it, we you, it, you can load kernels dynamically. You can shut down and reboot the context dynamically if you really screwed the GPU up. You can do all these things like totally live, upload data to it, download data from it, all this kind of stuff from your REPL, and that is not available to you if you try to do this in C++. Wow. And I don't know enough about the Python interfaces to say, but most of, the, most of the GPU programming I've seen that's accessible through Python is through C++. The Python is not actually uploading kernels and executing kernels on the machine. It's calling down to a library that's wrapping all this kind of stuff. But in Clojure, you actually can today, with uh, the, the GPU facilities in Cortex, write your own kernel and compile it and upload it to the GPU and put some data on it and see what it does. Wow, <laughs> I never knew. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I guess if people are interested in GPU program, they can look at the Cortex project too and kind of see how to how things are done. Yeah, I definitely I think it's it's going to be the friendliest possible pathway into CUDA probably in any language. But I'm assuming you know Clojure. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try to learn too many things at once, right? Yeah. That wouldn't be a good good thing. Exactly, and we just did a lot of work to make it safer for multi-threaded use cases so you can do your Go loops and you can do your fancy kind of who knows what you're doing in Clojure really, but it should, I say should because it's a new feature, it came out last week, but it should be pretty stable, like you, you should be able to launch GPU kernels from any thread and access the device from anywhere, and that's also not available in every language. Wow. So how would that... Uh help when you're doing some deep learning? Is that going to make it even faster? I don't know that we'd have to look at exact examples and understand exactly why they are not fast in order to answer that question. But what it does allow us is more freedom to solve those problems when we hit them. Mm, right. So uh, maybe you can give a, well, I, I've played with Cortex and I'm very impressed with it. I, I just wanted to kind of hear your what it can be used for right now and um you know where it's going to so there's image image recognition mm -hmm. and that is with convolution nets is that mm -hmm. okay and there's also some advanced features such as the what is it the infinite training How does yeah that so yeah totally i we really want when you're training a neural okay when you're training a neural net you really want to teach it the invariance that you want it to learn and not have it specialize on things that aren't invariant. So an example of this is if I have a bunch of images, but I know color should not be a key for the neural net, I want some of those images maybe to have a black and white filter on them. And 
I know that the neural net should be resistant to the images being rotated perhaps a little bit, so I want to rotate some of those images as I'm training and all this kind of other stuff. This is called data augmentation. All right. When you, uh, when you think about data augmentation, you're basically building an infinite data set at that point because I can start with some subset of images and especially as I learn the types of augmentations and invariants that I want to kind of lock in, I can really add a lot of augmentation and the idea of an infinite sequence is very natural to closure and it's very natural to functional programming in general and we really worked hard to make the training of cortex match kind of this concept of infinite sequences of data and really what you feed to cortex at the end of the day is an infinite sequence of maps to train um, and that's it it's just a sequence of maps each key in the map binds to a specific point in the network that you specify and under the covers we're doing all the work required to upload that efficiently and run it through the network and all these kinds of things but from the outside it's an infinite sequence of maps and that's a concept that I feel like is very natural for closure programmers yeah, definitely, definitely. So when you're when you're training this infinitely, <laughs> how do you know when you're done? Well, so there's a lot of different measures of that. Uh, as I said, you'll have one data sequence that's your training sequence. This is the infinite sequence. You'll have another data sequence that's your test sequence. This is not going to be an infinite sequence. And when you 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 run the network and you look at how the errors compare between the training and test sequence. Almost always your error on the, the test sequence will be higher than your training sequence. But there's a point of inflection when the error on the test sequence will start to rise compared to the error on the test on the training sequence. And this is the point when you should probably stop training. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so then you back off. Yeah, then you back off, you figure out more augmentation. Maybe that's good enough. Maybe your net is getting ninety five percent of the things right and that's that's fine for your problem and you can focus on the other five percent a different way. Or, you know, that gives you the other options, but that's when you've kind of maxed out that exact network and that exact training data. Yeah, that makes sense. There's um uh correct me if I get the terminology wrong, but there's also like loss functions and optimizers. Mm -hmm. uh, so Cortex has all that too? Yep. And uh we haven't put a whole lot of energy into optimizers. We generally use Atom which is different than all the papers, but it's a well-known one. And we use it because it doesn't have what are called hyperparameters. Or it doesn't have ones you normally have to tweak. So um, Atom is a good optimizer. It does what's called gradient descent, which is following basically following a derivative to the lowest point, um, kind of similar to Newton's method. And then uh, you have loss functions, and a loss function is a summation of lost terms. And a loss term is a specific, that's what you're actually trying to optimize. So the loss function is what you're trying to optimize together. And loss functions are compositions of loss terms. Okay. And it's easy to put different types of loss terms on the network. So one type of loss term is uh, how well did I actually do on the problem? That is, that should be the main one. That's the one you're trying to optimize. But another loss term, for example, might be a regularization term where you're telling the network something about how you want it to structure itself to solve the problem. Mm. So you're saying, I want you to have sparse weights here, or you're saying, I want the weight vectors there, I want the parameter vector to be um, as, the magnitude to be as small as possible, or there's various different things you can do to shape the net's interpretation of the problem. And shaping this interpretation leads to far more robust nets in general. So 
back to our example where you started overtraining, another thing you could do is stop training when you notice the, the loss is rising on your test set and just add some regularization to the net. And that effectively limits the number of ways the net can map itself to a problem. Mm. And once you understand that, that pathway, you can say things like, you know when to say, I need a sparse representation here for some reason. Because um, effectively you're saying you want the signal to be isolated into a few neurons as opposed to be spreading spread across many, many neurons in, in the case where you ask for a sparse re representation. Very cool. So uh, for people that are like wanting to jump right in and, and try out Cortex, so where where is it? Is it still under like rapid development right now? Where is the... It's, it's under rapid development and we're trying to head towards Cortex 1.0. And um, for people that want to try it out, we have an MNIST example that works and you can kind of build the next net from the MNIST example and you can do image classification. You can really do anything with Cortex you do with any other neural net, but the image one is the one we have a good demo of. It would be great to have more examples. It would be great to have Geom, I think is a really impressive visualization library. It's just got beautiful graphics and it would be great to have a couple interesting pathways of Geom where somebody took a data set and analyzed it with Encanter and built some good visualizations on it, then trained on it. And, you know, there's a whole pathway through this. That'd be cool. And then kind of, I mean, just people to use it and find issues and whatnot. We need it to stabilize. And in order for me personally to have confidence that it's stabilized, I need to know a lot of people have used it and had success with it. So until I see that, I'm not going to be comfortable saying it's 1.0 because the second I do that, there'll be a bug and it'll be one one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. not that, I mean, I know, I know like semantic versioning is like falling out of favor, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I definitely get it. But uh, <laughs> so, so if people are going to try it, do they need any special hardware? Can, do they need a special computer that's got GPU enabled? Uh, not necessarily. It, it, it's all in the size of the problem that you want to solve. And this is solvable on the CPU for sure. In fact, our training, our, our, our unit tests do in this on the CPU as well as on the GPU. And actually, another thing I wanted to mention about the CPU-GPU system is we've built a compatibility layer between the two. And this is really key so that we can write algorithms exactly once. And so the CPU, there's, P, there's the CPU system has a layer that mimics how the GPU works in terms of its, some of its API points, like streams and devices and this kind of thing. And this is so that we can write, like, for instance, a multi-threaded batch uploading system, a multi-stream batch uploading system, and we can write it exactly once. And it will work pretty much the same on the CPU and the GPU. Um, and this has already helped a lot because, the, because they have the same rules, but they have slight differences, and those slight differences expose bugs in the other implementations. Hmm. So... Uh do you usually start off not using the GPU on a problem and then turn or run it on a GPU as you have proved it out? Or, or? No, I, okay. I start off on the GPU right away. And honestly, I start off trying to think really hard about how to compose my data set. Because I don't have as much... If you look at the projects I've been doing, I don't really have that much code around training the GPU. I have a lot of code around building data sets. Hmm. 
um, and doing augmentation or maybe I want to train for a while, see what the net did bad on and look at those bad examples and do more augmentation to avoid those bad examples or do something with those bad examples to add them to the data set. Or there's just a long process of building great data sets. And really great machine learning is built on great data sets. Mm-hmm. The, the neural networks are only so powerful at the end of the day. You've got to build a great data set if you want a great result. So yeah, so we're, we're, if we're talking about a lot of data, do, do you usually run it on like Amazon somewhere or somewhere, or somewhere else or do you run it locally? I run it locally. Um, we're not really talking about a ton of data as much as we're talking about very careful construction of what the net's seeing. I see. But you could run it on Amazon if you wanted to. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've definitely ran it on Amazon's GPU instances and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're going to go if you need a big machine you don't want to pay for yourself, you know. Yeah. But a GPU instance on Amazon's, you know, 1600 a month or something like that. So you have to be careful. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> but it's nice that you have the option that you can either do it locally or yep. on Amazon. And, you know, one of our guys, Charles, put in a bunch of work into a Docker container, and that uh, Docker is an amazing tool for exactly that sort of use case where I have this fixed software platform and I really don't want to configure an entire machine. Can I just package this platform up and run it on a remote instance? That's Amazon works really well with Docker, and that's the way to go for a lot of that stuff. Cool. Yeah, so um, if people are looking to get involved and start trying out Cortex. Uh, what's, I guess you kind of need two things, right? You need, you need the background in deep learning <laughs> and then, um, you know, how to get involved as well. So maybe you could speak to both, like what, what resources, if somebody is like, yes, I, I can see that deep learning is really cool and I, I want to learn about it. How, how, how would they best go about that? Um, okay, so let's talk about this at a couple different levels. Um, let's say I don't know deep learning, but I can see it's, I've seen it do amazing things and I want to get into it. I think the first step is to do some of the online courses on deep learning. Um, there's courses by Andrew Ng and Jeffrey Hinton. And especially Jeffrey's course, I think, is a great introduction to deep learning. Um, so that's the first step. Then once you've done enough of those courses to kind of feel the math out, you don't have to understand it, but you you should at least have an overview of it, then I would say you jump into, use the MNIST example, maybe classify letters instead of digits, or I don't know, just try to change it a little bit and start to understand what's going on. And so that's the level of, I don't know deep learning, and I'm, yeah, uh, I would say at the other end of the spectrum, if you know deep learning well, and you like Clojure, and I imagine if you know deep learning well, you know a good bit of Python, then the next step is help us out. Like, help us, help us expand our toolkit to be uh, as powerful as Python's. Because quite honestly, even though release, NumPy has had a lot of problems in terms of incompatibilities and being difficult to work with, at this point in time, NumPy and Scikit are really good toolkits and help us get there. Like, we don't have the horsepower, I think, topic to build everything in the world for machine learning. We have enough horsepower to build Cortex and to keep developing on this path, but there's so many other pieces that's not there. And then the last one I would say is you are really familiar with neural nets and you've trained a bunch yourself. And I would say we need help 
developing the tensor abstraction underneath Cortex, because right now it is not written with one, and I've noticed that CAFE2 and TensorFlow both have great what are called tensor abstractions, which are a set of mathematical operations, and some help designing that library would help not only Cortex, but anybody who wants to use GPU programming from uh, Clojure. Sounds like a great great list. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's three different levels, and yeah. Honestly, Karen, you've helped so much with your blog post. That really helped a lot. And well, I think we can't thank you enough for that. Oh, well, uh, I thank you for Cortex. Like I said, I'm very excited. Um, it personally frustrates me to see Python getting a, a, a lock hold on <laughs> deep learning when I think mm -hmm. that Clojure can um, really bring a lot to the table that Python can't. So um, I, I'm happy, very happy to see uh, deep learning uh, being embraced by the closure community, and I, I think that really will help our future as a language too. Yeah, it's a different pathway. One thing, one thing that I realized is in order to, you know, in order to build Cortex, you need a, a mix of skills that's not common in the closure community. But those skills are done now, and now to push closure forward, we need more closure programmers who are great closure programmers to get in there and make it better. Yay! <laughs> so, so everyone out there, <laughs> jump in. Um, yeah. So. Uh. And you're also building toolkits that you can use when you're not doing deep learning. As I said, another interesting aspect of this is an OpenCL backend and better CUDA backends and a better math library that joins the both of them. And in that case, you can use your closure and you can actually get great performance solving problems that you cannot solve any other way because you just can't handle that much data in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, there, there is some interop too, right, between uh, Cortex, at least I think I saw some of that, that you could um, bring your model over from Keras, right? Yep. And then, yeah, so there, there is some sort of interop that if you wanted to and you were a person that was more comfortable initially or had already done some stuff in Keras and you wanted to port it over to Cortex enclosure, you could do that. Yep. There's a couple different ways you could go about it. We have an HDF5 layer, but HDF5 is a very uh, it's a library that changes its its binary interface a lot. So it, right now it works on Ubuntu 16. I installed 17, and HDF5 failed instantly. Oh, and wow. <laughs> so what we would be neat is if we could get help people writing Eden, or yeah, basically people writing Eden or Nippy from Python. Uh, and if we get models in that format, that would be a hundred times better, and it would last so much longer than any HDF5 model. Yeah, and it would just increase our interop with uh, that ecosystem that's already, you know, got a, it, a big user base. It totally would. It totally would. And I guess, you know, Java has good support for JSON. You could also do a lot of stuff in JSON, but it, you got to do it, you know, and you have to write our, the, the closure end of it and get it in, but, but th that's kind of where a lot of that would be really interesting. I'd really like us not to be using binary formats. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. So is there anything uh, that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about with Cortex or just in anything else? No, not really. I'm 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 pretty happy with the conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, good. <laughs> well, um, I, I wanted to make sure that we left time at the end of the show um, for advice. Uh, you've already given uh, a lot of great advice uh, out during the interview, but uh, just in general, um, a, a piece of advice, parting advice for the mm -hmm. listeners. 
parting advice for the listeners. Maybe I'm making this too hard. <laughs> I'm not, you know, like, I'm, uh, uh, be patient, work hard. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing's easy. Nothing worthwhile is easy. Probably those three. I can definitely uh, relate to all that. So, <laughs> and Cortex is a is a is a prime example of that. That it's it's not easy. It's not easy making no. th this project, and uh, you know it's taken a lot of time. When did you start it? I started. I guess I think ThinkTopic started this almost a year and a half ago. I'd say like December uh, 2016, November 2016 timeframe, and. Uh, getting the GPU to work at all from Clojure was a battle, and I can't tell you how many really hard bugs have happened where all the unit tests pass, but the net doesn't train. <laughs> and I'm sitting there looking at literally megabytes of numbers spewing out of the GPU, trying to figure out why this beast of a machine, you know system isn't doing what I expected it to. I can't even imagine that. How do you even start to dig into that? <laughs> You, uh, you take a breath and you try to figure out a way to cut the problem in half. And you just keep doing that until you've cut the problem enough that you see where the problem is coming from. Wow. And it's just very abstract. There's no debugger. There's no print line. There's no anything that's going to actually help you solve this problem. Like the last problem, I, we did a 9.5 and then a quickly after a 9.6 release because we found a problem. And that was because we switched to using what are called streams. And we were initializing data in one stream, and then we were initializing kind of the batching system in one stream, and then we were trying to upload data in another stream. Turns out the initialization stream wasn't finishing its initialization, and we would start uploading, and then those two would collide, so we'd have some zeros in our uploaded data. Wow. And so, yeah, <laughs> and that's all very abstract. You know, that's happening on a piece of hardware that you can't get any introspection to, or it's happening on a CPU thread that's processing megabytes of data. Wow. Is, is um, it... Is there anything that you you help that helps you kind of like mentally troubleshooting? Like when 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 I personally get a really hard problem, which it's not as hard as what you're talking about. Like I I need like some cheese or something. <laughs> Let me get through. <laughs> Is there anything you go to to give your give yourself energy to? Um. All I do, honestly, most of the time, is try to think of. Uh, this is going to be very technical. I just try to think of a repro case, some way I can just sit something in a do times or a for loop. And in this case, I was looking for inconsistent results. So I would take mm. the same network and infer 10 different times and see if I got the same answer. Mm. And it turns out I didn't. So at least then I knew the pathway was in the infer step, but you know that still gave me a lot of options. Uh, over time, I've just learned to throw a lot of exceptions and test the numbers very, very, very carefully. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's hardcore. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, it was this is one of the harder things I've worked on. But so there's an analogy to graphics. If you've ever tried to program OpenGL, you will spend at least a day looking at a black screen, probably once a month. Maybe more often, and that's because you set up your view frustum incorrectly or your buffer that you thought you'd uploaded wasn't actually uploaded or you put the wrong handle in the wrong spot or it was one of the guys who worked on the physics team at Nvidia had a funny post that was like, you get CUDA errors from the CUDA APIs, and he said the CUDA error he got was, CUDA, it's a secret. <laughs> 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 Which, it does feel sometimes like that. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to complain about my integration test timing errors anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, type of issue. Yeah.
um, it's just a lot of patience and a lot of time. You got to really respect the time it takes to, to build something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I, I thank uh, you and your um, team there for taking the time and investing in this. Uh, and that I think that it's really going to benefit uh, many people in the closure community and maybe, you know, at large helping with uh, medical, pushing medical technology forward and making lives better for other people. So That'd really be great. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> keep it up. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Karen. Yeah. So uh, th- thanks again for being on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, you're welcome. Maybe we can uh, arrange a time to come back and in a, a bit and see how Cortex has progressed. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's uh, let's let's get some more people working on this. <laughs> cool. Involved. All right. Well, um, I think we'll wrap it up here. So thank you, Chris, and for taking the time to talk to us. And thanks everyone for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Today's guest was Chris Nuremberger. You can see what Chris is up to on GitHub at his account, C-N-U-E-R-N-B-E-R-C Nuremberg. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. That's at G-I-G-A-S-Q-U-I-D. Think 8 billion arms on Twitter and GitHub. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.